0: Welcome to Weekends on Jacobin. I'm Anna Kasparian, joined by Nando Vila, my trusty co-host. Mm. Nando, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We had a few technical glitches, you know, to start the stream, but we're here for you, people. You guys can Don't see worry. It. <laughs> we're going to deliver the takes. We're going to deliver the news. That's the important thing, you know. We yes, look, we look yes. great. We always look great, but the most important thing is the takes.
0: Yes, Nando, according to my mom, you always look great. <laughs> and the Washington Post, and I'm sure many others. Uh, but yeah, we did have some technical issues. Sorry for the late start today. Uh, but we do have a great show ahead. Uh, hopefully, uh, we can actually carry out a smart conversation about uh, Donald Trump's Supreme Court pick. Uh, we're mm. going to have a Yale professor of jurisprudence and history to join us to talk about that. Samuel Moyne uh, will be joining us later in the show. I oh. am going to engage in a debate with Nando. Something yes. hasn't been sitting well with me, and I feel I felt like I needed to speak up. So we're going to actually okay. start the show with that. Let's get right to it. Um, so Nando seems to have some sort of issue with Daniel Dale. Now he is the (laughs) CNN fact checker on name alone on title alone. I get it. You can suspect that there's going to be some weak sauce activity by any type Mm. of legacy media or corporate media fact checker. However, I, I think Daniel Dale is okay. Okay. Like I'm not going to insult him by calling him dorky, but like he can be dorky, you know, and I don't think that's an insult, but I think like in the context of mainstream media fact checkers who usually tend to be awful, awful people who do like these insane, unfair fact checks on socialists and progressives, Daniel Dale seems to be a little more fair. Okay. So I want to give you an example, and then I want to hear your case for why you're such a Daniel Dale hater. So this is after Donald Trump's RNC speech. This is the video that went viral. Many people were talking about it because he went three and a half minutes straight fact checking uh, Trump. I'm not going to make you watch the whole three and a half minute video, but I'll give you a little taste. Watch.
2: Anderson, this president is a serial liar, and he serially lied tonight. I counted preliminarily more than 20 false or misleading claims. I want to go through a whole bunch of them quickly because I think it's all important. Trump said Joe Biden is, quote, talking about taking down the border wall. Biden has specifically, explicitly rejected that idea. He just said he'll stop further additional construction. Trump claimed, as always, that he is the one who passed the Veterans Choice Law. Barack Obama signed that into law in 2014. Trump signed a 2018 law to modify it. Trump said, I have done more for the African-American community than any president since Abraham Lincoln? That is ludicrous. Lyndon Johnson, for one, signed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Trump again touted a, quote, record 9 million job gain over the past three months. He didn't mention, as usual, that that gain follows a record 22 million job loss over the previous two months. He said he'll, quote, continue to lower drug prices. They've increased during his presidency. He said they opened a Jerusalem embassy for less than 500,000. Early documents show it was at least 21 million.
0: Okay. So you guys get the picture. He went Mm. on and on and on. And, you know, his fact checks were fair. They were accurate. Uh, But Nando, the thing that I really appreciated about that video, especially as someone who, you know, knows the annoying minutia of ethical journalism, so-called journalists are like not supposed to ever refer to politicians as liars, right? So they never say it, and and it is it's it's a rule, right? if it's it's an unspoken rule for the most part, but they avoid yeah. doing it because they don't want to seem as though their uh, critique or whatever it is too partisan. And so I appreciate that he calls Donald Trump a liar because that's what Donald Trump is i I wish, and I hope that in the future, when politicians are lying. That type of criticism is extended to them as well. And it's not just saved specifically for Donald Trump. But look, it's not easy to like stand there or sit there in, in his case for three and a half minutes and like fact check without a script, which most, you know, uh, television broadcasters yeah. do have. I'm useless and without, so I, for sure. Uh, you're not, you're not. Uh, but, but you get what I'm saying. Like, I, I think totally. he's a little better than most of the crap that we get on cable news.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess my my uh, r- the the reason why I recoil from that kind of thing is because mm. the fact check industry writ large, which is something that is relatively recent in journalism, has proven time and time again to be a sort of referee for the status quo. Um, You know, there's the famous kind of I mean, Glenn Kessler uh, of The Washington Post, who is kind of the most famous fact checker in America, um, is like notorious for this. Right. I mean, he he constantly, constantly um, cites incredibly shoddy uh, reasons for calling things like, you know, Medicare for all like unfeasible or something. And he cites that as fact. Right. Um, and uh, I mean, there was like also like the absurd kind of ticky-tack nature of it. You know, like I remember when Philip Bump of the Washington Post fact-checked Bernie Sanders for saying that his the average yeah. campaign donation or something was twenty seven dollars. Instead, he it was like twenty seven forty six, you know, or something like like twenty seven dollars and forty six cents, or some, like some absurd fact check like that, um, and. And, and and I remember even, like, the PolitiFact, you know, when they do, like, their lie of the year, like, um, use, like, a, an Obama statement on the Affordable Care Act, which was, like, plainly not the lie. Le, 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 it probably wasn't even a lie, let alone, like, the, the whopper kind of of the year. Anyway, the so the, the fact-checking industry writ large, I find to be incredibly problem- problematic. I mean, they're basically, mm-hmm. like you know hall monitors for the status quo right Mm -hmm. um anyone Mm -hmm. who kind of deviates from the status quo in any meaningful way um is going to get fact is going to like incur the wrath of the fact checkers daniel dale specifically and it wasn't in that part of the clip but later on in the clip for example like he he does this thing which i find Mm -hmm. just problematic from a fact checking and journalistic standpoint which is like you know, Donald Trump claimed that Joe like the Chinese want Joe Biden to win, you know, like our intelligence agencies say that the Chinese want Joe Biden to win because like it's like he's citing the intelligence agency know, report yeah. or intel or whatever as fact. And like, eh, I don't, you know, that's not how that works. And mm-hmm. the broader point being that facts alone have no content. You know, facts devoid of ideology are nothing. They're just point random data points. If you don't connect them to tell a bigger story, they're essentially meaningless. And the biggest problem with people at CNN or or any of the fact checkers is that they don't realize how much ideology is baked into their own quote unquote fact checks. And, you know, it's plainly obvious for me to see, but they don't see it. They're like a fish in water. Like they don't know that they're in water, but they're drowning in ideology. But Mm -hmm, they just mm -hmm. don't know that. They don't see it that way. They're just calling balls and strikes. But it's not true. Yeah,
0: no, I totally agree. Like, I agree with you in that regard, right? So in the context of this, like, weird fact-checking media industry, excuse me, um, Daniel Dale annoys me, thank you, annoys me the least, right? Yeah, Um, (laughs) And it's because, you know, he doesn't, he's not as, Awful, As all the other examples you uh, provided where the mm-hmm. so-called fact checkers clearly have a bias that's shining through in the way that they do fact checks on some politicians like Bernie Sanders versus others who lie and get away with it on a regular basis. Also, just like the whole notion of fact checkers, like the fact that that is a slice of what the news industry does is mm-hmm. ridiculous.
1: Journalism
0: yeah. is supposed to be yeah. fact check. There shouldn't be these context. other people.
1: Yeah, there shouldn't be these other people called yeah. fact check. Like you know, the, it's. But I mean, it's I like, guess the it's the, like Anderson yeah.
0: Cooper's one segment keeping him honest. It's like, right. oh, you're dedicating one segment to keep, one segment, keeping them yeah. honest. It's just ridiculous. Anyway, go ahead.
1: No, the the uh, I guess the 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 final thing I'll say is like, uh, or not maybe not the final thing. Maybe we can say more. But the the the, the other thing I'll say is that. A there's, like a, there's a little bit of, like, a kabuki performance to the whole thing that I find kind of too transparent for my taste. But the other thing is that, um, you know, this, this big thing, like, you cited about calling Trump a liar, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, Donald Trump's a liar. But so is Hillary Clinton. So is Joe Biden. Like, yeah. they all lie. Politicians lie all the time. And, it's, and it's, it's, like, something that Adam Curtis says, you know, like, in, in some of his documentaries where it's, like, politicians lie. The public knows, like, understands that the politicians lie to them. The politicians know that the public knows that they are lying to them. Like, yeah. it's just, it, you know, it, it, so this, this, like, big kind of breakthrough that they're calling Donald Trump a liar, you know, it rings to, I think, the vast majority of people as, um, as, like, kind of hollow given that they would never do that for Hillary Clinton. Like, when Hillary Clinton says, I'm going to put working families first, like, No one's going to call her a liar for saying that, but it's a lie. Like, she would never do that. Never in her life has she ever put working families first, right? She's put other interests first, herself primarily, but also, like, you know, whoever, like, you know, all her corporate masters kind of thing. You know, so, and, and no fact checker is going to call that a lie, but it is, and everyone knows that.
0: Yeah. Now I'm getting a little annoyed because we actually agree way more than I expected to. But yeah, look, you're absolutely (laughs) right about that. Um, It's selective fact checking. And let's also not forget that in many cases, and we've outlined some of them on this show, the media not only refuses to or fails to fact check certain politicians, it literally serves as stenographers for some of those lies. You know, and so, or yeah. a lot of those lies, uh, you know, we talked about it in the context of foreign policy and how, you know, the New York Times, for instance, just went ahead with the narrative um, from the OAS uh, regarding Bolivia. And then yeah. later, later, very quietly did somewhat of an apology slash retraction. Whoopsie daisy.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: And and so that kind of narrative led to um, a democratically elected uh, leader uh, basically getting run out of the position that he rightfully would have won, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think that those uh, criticisms are valid. I-, I think that in the grand scheme of things and in the context of what we're seeing right now, yeah. Daniel Dale annoys me the least.
1: I don't mean to pick on that's Daniel That's all I'm
0: Dale. saying. Yeah, yeah, that's, you I'm sure know, he's a like, good I guy. like I felt g-
1: g- bad. He seems like a good guy. He seems
0: guy. nice. He seems nice. He's a nice
1: guy. <laughs> 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 I mean, but like his fact check on Trump, like making fun of, Kamala or slash Kamala and he's like you know like when Charles like it drives you crazy you know like it drives Kamala Harris Kamala Harris is crazy when you and and he's like no it doesn't you know like that's not a fact check That's that that's just not in any way shape or form like a legitimate fact check I'm sorry like you don't you do not know for a fact that it does not drive her crazy you just don't I mean there's no there's no way to prove that I mean you have no idea what is like going on in her head that is just not a journalistic fact if that makes sense
0: Yeah, look, the um, protective uh, nature, uh, like how protective they are of status quo politicians, I think gets under my skin the most, right? Like, if you have even a little bit of a criticism or critique toward the Bidens or Kamala Harris's of the world, they get upset. And that's that's what annoys me, because I think there are valid criticisms. Just because they stay away from those critiques doesn't mean that Americans don't notice the failures and that other people who actually want to do their jobs appropriately um, shouldn't bring them up. And that's what we do on this show.
1: Yeah. Well, should I do the Verso read, Anna?
0: Do it. Yes.
1: Okay. Because this debate, (laughs) just like everything else on this show, is brought to you by Verso Books. Now you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more new books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate their 50th anniversary and the launch of the Book Club, each member tier is 50% off for the first three months. The Comrade tier is now $20, and if you join in September, you'll get Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, The Political Economy of Saving the Planet by Noam Chomsky and Robert Poland, Glitch Feminism, a Manifesto by Legacy Russell, Corona Climate Chronic Emergency, War Communism in the 21st Century by Andreas Malm, Care Manifesto, The Politics of Interdependence by the Care Collective, and a new edition of The Groundings with My Brothers by Walter Rodney. Plus, you'll get eight additional Ebooks,
0: nice I love it I love it yeah Uh, and you're filling your shelves you know
1: right Right now we
0: see the guitars but oh there we go there There we go there they are
1: I also have my way to go uh, my I gotta show you my Karl Marx uh, uh, piggy bank love this it's my Karl Marx piggy bank it says Das Kapital because you put all your Mm -hmm, capital mm -hmm. in his head so there you go on the bookshelf.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Well.
1: Um, oh, there he's got the V.I. Lennon.
0: Look at you guys with your hey. busts. I don't. I don't have any busts in this house. I think. I think busts are a little <laughs> creepy. Like I've always thought they were creepy. But it's okay. I, I you know, fully support your decision to have busts uh, in your homes. <laughs> mm. All right. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about uh, capital, and let's talk about people in positions of power. And uh, how they uh, engage in destroying our society, but they get to launder their reputations through media by handing out pennies to people. So um, (laughs) it's the truth. So what I'd like to talk about today is how willing and ready legacy media outlets are in engaging billionaires who have honestly contributed the most to inequality in this country, to pain and suffering in this country, but doesn't matter to the legacy media outlets because they want to help these billionaires with their PR strategies, with laundering their images. And that certainly is the case when it comes to people like Jeff Bezos, who apparently is spending uh, some of his money on this effort to build uh, daycare centers or preschools for families who are living in poverty. Now, childcare, as we know, is incredibly expensive. And so let me just note that a lot of people uh, choose to stay home rather than pay for childcare because it's so expensive. Uh, That lessens the workforce for people like Jeff Bezos. Let me just put that point out there. But he did post on uh, Instagram, as you saw earlier, about this uh, new classroom that he's opening up for preschool students. Uh, This classroom is just the beginning. The Bezos Academy Opens its doors on October 19th. This one in Des Moines, Washington, is the first of many free preschools that will be opening for underserved children. Extra kudos to the team for fighting out how to make this happen even amidst COVID. So, oh, this is such... I mean, the brave men and women who uh, put this effort together and managed to succeed and um, funneling a tiny, tiny bit of Jeff Bezos' money toward this project. Wow, they're American heroes. Um, but look, the issue with this is that when you look at the grand scheme of things, we need to tackle why so many people are living in poverty and why we would need some sort of charitable effort to help parents uh, afford childcare for their kids or education for their kids. The problem isn't that we uh, need more charitable actions as like the one that we're seeing right now from Jeff Bezos. The problem is Jeff Bezos fuels the economic situation in which so many people live in poverty and need to rely on the whims of billionaires uh, in order to make ends meet. So Bezos and his Amazon day fund has apparently given $100 million to a variety of homeless focused nonprofits. Uh, Again, this completely ignores the fact that inequality has contributed to homelessness in this country. This is one of the richest countries in the world, and we have a giant homeless population, sixty thousand in uh, Los Angeles alone. Amazon uh, raises the wages of all of its raised its wages uh, of all of its employees to fifteen dollars an hour a few years ago. Only after Bernie Sanders uh, really put Jeff Bezos's feet to the fire and demanded that he raise wages. But keep in mind that even at this point, with a $15 per hour wage... Depending on where you live, it's still not enough to make ends meet, even if you're living in a dual income household. So for instance, let's say you're a family of four, both parents working. What would you need to make in 2020 in Los Angeles, for instance, in order to make ends meet? That means to be able to pay for housing, for food, for education, for childcare, all of that stuff uh, to live somewhat comfortably. Well, in Los Angeles, you need to make $20 and 28 cents. In New York, that number jumps up to $22 hour, $22.87. And in Seattle, the number is $29.75. Now, yes, I chose um, expensive areas in the country, uh, some of these big cities. But, you know, that's part of the problem with talking about wages as if, raising it to a certain amount is going to impact every American similarly. That's not the case. And $15 is still not considered a livable wage in many parts of this country, right? Many parts of this country where the jobs are. And so, you know, when you really think about How much effort it took to get Jeff Bezos just to raise wages to $15 an hour. I'm sorry, I'm just like not interested in giving him kudos because he opened uh, a preschool for people living in poverty in one particular area of the country. How about you pay your taxes? You know, how about you do your part as an American who sucked up opportunities in this country but refuses to help fund opportunities? For Other people. And so um, Bezos could just, you know, pay his workers more rather than toss the country a few pennies here or there um, as nothing more than a PR stunt. Again, I really want to emphasize that. And it would also be nice if his company paid its fair share of taxes. So, for instance, Amazon told investors it paid a federal income tax rate of one point two percent last year that's about 13 percentage points lower than the average American tax rate, Americans tax rate paid in 2019, even more striking. That was a three-year high. That was a three-year high for Amazon, okay? So average Americans, working Americans paid more in federal income taxes than Amazon did for several years. Let me give you more examples. 2019 was the first time Amazon uh, reported paying taxes since 2016, and that's according to a recent financial filing uh, with the SEC. Despite making billions in profits, Amazon showed federal tax refunds in 2017 and 2018 All told, the company reported $30.1 billion in profits, not revenue, profits in the U.S. over the past three years. It also reported paying a negative $104 million to the IRS. (laughs) Translation, Amazon received a nine-figure refund on its sizable earnings. Now, I get it. People are going to argue, well, I mean, this is how the tax system works. This is how the tax code is, is, is written, Trump's. Tax cuts for the wealthy mean that Bezos and Amazon can take advantage of corporate tax loopholes. They get to pay a much lower rate. But again, this is the kind of system that people in positions of power, wealthy people like Jeff Bezos, lobby for. They they fight aggressively. They can't. They, Contribute campaign donations to politicians who promise to either cut taxes, or in the case of Joe Biden, really refuse to do much about how unequal and unfair the tax system is right now. Um, Bezos also is the first person on Earth to um, be worth more than two hundred billion dollars. So this argument that oh well he gave a hundred million dollars to this one project and isn't he such a great guy? Let's write these glowing profiles about him. I'm not buying it, and I think it's pretty sick that it happens on a regular basis. Um, so I want to give you some more examples. One of my favorite people, Robert Reich, uh, wrote a great piece in The Guardian titled, America's, bil- America's billionaires are giving to charity, but much of it is self-serving rubbish. So in April, um, he wrote about uh, the 100 million to food banks, uh, that was given by Jeff Bezos uh, as part of his you know, charity. And what Reich writes is the amounts involved are tiny relative to the fortunes behind them. Bezos' $100 million, for example, amounts to 11 days of his income. Well-publicized philanthropy also conveniently distracts attention from how several of these billionaires are endangering their workers and, by extension, the public. Bezos still doesn't provide sick leave for workers unless they test positive for COVID-19, in which case they just get two weeks. On March 20th, four senators sent him a letter expressing concern that the company wasn't doing enough to protect its warehouse workers. And we also knew about, uh, you know, warehouse workers who immediately got fired once they tried to organize and do something about this. Um, And finally... Reich doesn't just focus on Jeff Bezos. I know it seems like I'm just picking on Bezos. But there are multiple other examples. For instance, Walmart um, is a bit of an issue. Uh, Walmart engages in very similar activity. Bill Gates, if you can recall, got a lot of positive attention for his efforts in helping to fund a possible vaccine for coronavirus. And as uh, was written in this piece, As Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal editorial page put it, if we had a wealth tax like Elizabeth Warren proposed, it's unlikely Bill Gates would have the capacity to act this boldly. That's absurd. Warren's tax would have cost Gates about six billion dollars a year, roughly his annual income from his 100 billion dollars. So in other words, if we actually had a fair tax system, if we actually had a redistribution of wealth that made sense, if the wealthiest people in this country actually paid their fair share of taxes, it would actually it would contribute a lot more to society compared to, you know, the relatively small amount they provide through these uh, charitable organizations or these charitable efforts. And by the way, um, in 2018, for example, Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, and his other half, who he's now divorced from, gave about 1.5% of their total net worth or $2 billion to fund nonprofit schools and homeless charities through their day one fund. And of course, there are other um, ramifications to this. There are other stories that I think really miss the mark when it comes to how incredibly damaging this inequality is and how this system forces good people in this country to make unbelievably difficult decisions. And so I want to give you a recent example about a little boy named Blaze. Take a look. This is Angela Farnan with baby Blaze. Blaze was born with a congenital heart defect. He had his first surgery at only three days old. Angela was on the team that took care of Blaze in the hospital for more than six months. She quickly became like family to the baby and his mother. Blaze had a second surgery at eight months old, and that's when his mother asked this. She made a heartfelt decision um, to ask us if we'd be willing to keep him on a permanent basis. Angela and her husband said they fell in love with blaze and knew immediately it was the right choice. They officially adopted blaze this past summer. So hat tip to TMBS. They covered this story in one of their post game episodes and you guys should become patrons of the show. It's excellent. Um, But I, I bring it up because that story was covered as some heartwarming, awesome story. Like, Oh my gosh, this nurse, what a great person. She decided to uh, take on this incredibly important role in this little boy's life when his parents didn't have the means to afford his medical treatment. No, no, but the problem is the, it, like, Insane cost of medical treatment in this country. That's the problem. Like, that's what the story is. And I'm not, you know, trying to hate on the nurse. What the nurse did is kind, is sweet. You know, she's a good person. She's not the issue here. But what the issue is, is how these types of problems get framed and like repackaged as positives in the media. That is the problem. The problem is the root of the issue here, the fact that a family had to give up their own child because they could not afford health care for their child, right? But instead, the whole focus, all of the framing is on how there's this charitable act. Don't be hurt. Don't be angry about this insane, pathetic system. Just look at this heartwarming story and focus on that. Well, I refuse to do that, and we should hold media accountable when they cover stories this way. Because again, the real story is the inequality. It is this unjust, unfair system of redistributing wealth to the very top. And if anyone asks you about how you should feel about billionaires or how you should feel about these uh, philanthropic stories, I really suggest that you take some uh, you know, talking points or some leadership from someone who understands these issues well. Senator Bernie Sanders.
2: Who's your favorite billionaire in America? I think Warren Buffett has said some decent things. When, when you have a billionaire who talks about raising taxes on the rich, I think he deserves some credit. I'm not trying to coach your answers, but when you're on this show, you should say, well, Michael Bloomberg, I like a lot. <laughs> but, but Buffett's a good answer, too.
0: So uh, one of my favorite tweets over this past week is from, you know, Someone who uh, has a handle that I'm not even going to try to pronounce, but nonetheless, like, let's just take a look at what the tweet is because it's so on point. Every heartwarming human interest story in America is like, he raised $20,000 to keep 200 orphans from being crushed in the orphan crushing machine and then never (laughs) asks why an orphan crushing machine exists or why you'd need to pay to prevent it from being used. So- we just need to be a little more critical about the framing of these philanthropic efforts, because it's really not about being charitable or being a good person or being philanthropic. It's all about laundering the reputations of people who have helped fund the effort of inequality in this country.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really crazy. I mean, the, the, I remember when uh, Bill Gates did the giving pledge. Um, and he committed to, uh, giving away like half of his wealth and he kind of got other billionaires to sign on to the giving pledge. And this was seen as this like incredible thing and all that stuff. Bill Gates today is worth more than that day, the day he decided to give all his wealth away. It's like funny how that works. Like they give all their wealth away, but somehow keep getting richer because it's not so much about the dollar amount. It's about power. Um, mm-hmm. and when you have so much power, it's like the money just flows into you. It doesn't, you don't even have to do anything anymore. You know, like Bill Gates, like doesn't really meaningfully work anymore, but he somehow still keeps on getting richer. Um, and it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's really shocking. Like, I mean, someone like Bill Gates, you know, who, who nominally is giving away all his wealth. I mean, he obviously still controls it and uses it for what he wants. Uh, namely mm-hmm. for the most part, his fanatical, uh, devotion to privatizing the public education system Um, and you know it just that shows just how problematic that idea is this idea that billionaires just get to decide what to do with our collective resources because it is our collective resources we live you know not to not to get all jokerfied or anything but we live in a society Um, and so it's (laughs) (laughs) it's all ours and and it's It's just impossible for regular small brain people like us Anna to really understand what a bill, what even one billion dollars is like i think it's it's hard to wrap your mind around just how much money that is like how wealthy those people are. There is no justification like there is no even for five seconds if you stop to think about like does anyone really deserve or need even one billion dollars like Mm -hmm. No argument can be made that that is in any way moral, especially in a world with so much hunger and deprivation and suffering that that one person would have over one billion dollars to do what he pleases. I mean, it's just it's crazy.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, you know, what it does to the country, right, like this insane inequality, I, I just don't really understand it or get it. So. I mean, we both live in LA, we see the wealth mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, there's no question. And I'm not in a bad area, you know, I'm in a pretty decent area. And I live in a, in a, in a little condo, but right on the next block, you start seeing these huge like $5 million homes. But yeah. there are homeless people everywhere, right? Everywhere, like, yeah. why, do you, why, why would anyone want to live like that? Right. Like, let's say you don't care about humanity at all. You only care about your own comfort, your own self-interest. Right. I mean, I think that that's wrong and you should want to live in a society that takes care of everyone. But let's say you're the most selfish, you know, person on the planet and you don't care about people in poverty. Okay, if you only care about yourself, do you want to live in a situation where there's human excrement on the sidewalk every day (laughs) because people don't have homes? Do you? I don't want to live in a situation like that. I just yeah. don't get it. I don't get what their where their heads at. I don't get why they need to accumulate this much wealth. I think you're right, the power has a lot to do with it. Um but this type of greed is tearing the country apart and the media has either been complicit in it or has aided and abetted this system mm-hmm. over and over again.
1: Yeah. And I think that you know, the, the conservative repost to the left critique of inequality is that, like, why do you care about inequality if, you know, everyone else is kind of going up? You know, that's the Steven Pinker uh, argument is that, you know, inequality doesn't matter. What you have to look at is kind of like total outcomes. And if you look at the trends, like, you know, kind of it's going up and like it's that's just problematic. But the. The on its like on its own terms, but inequality in and of itself is a corrosive in influence on society. It doesn't matter if it's like a you know billionaires versus you know people making four dollars an hour uh, plus tips in restaurants or whatever. But it's it's like if you if you take that just the diff, you just change the dollar amounts but make the difference the same and the amount of people that control the the sort of amount of wealth the same. The the corrosive influence on the society and on the politics because they have, because it is at the end of the day about power, not about the amount of money they have. You know, because they have so much power, that creates um, a sense of powerlessness from mm-hmm. the rest of the society, which has all the, like, all the troublesome things that we're witnessing in our society today, which is like, you know, cynicism, apathy, uh, Deaths of despair, all that comes from a sense of not having an own stake a stake in your own life that there's these forces bigger than you, mainly billionaires, just kind of controlling everything, and you really don't have a say. you can kind of kick and scream about it and you know get mad about stuff, but you really don't have anything to do about it and so that's the that that isn't in and of itself the problem with inequality it 's not so much the dollar amount i mean the dollar amount is. Totally. Also, but it's really about power.
0: Yeah, it it undermines what uh, we've been told this country cares so much about, which is democracy, the democratic process. It it creates right. um, an entire class of powerless people, and yeah, it's it's an unstable situation to uh, function under, and we're we're seeing the outcome of that right now. I mean, I, yeah. I know that a lot of these protests out on the street, of course, have to do with uh, police brutality, but at the heart of it is, you know, how poverty plays a role in all of this, yeah. how, how brutal policing takes place in um, the most impoverished neighborhoods in this country. Uh, so, you know, there's certainly some reckoning uh, that people who support and, and protect this system have to deal with, but they, they're just so defiant and resistant. It's, yeah. it's pretty unbearable.
1: The mere presence of inequality is proof enough that we don't really live in a democracy, Democracy mm-hmm. and inequality is completely at odds. Like it's, it's like a literal impossibility. If you have democracy, you cannot have inequality because the presence of inequ- – if, if there was a democracy, the majority of the people would just use their democratic rights, exercise their democratic rights to redistribute wealth to themselves. Like why wouldn't they? If they had the power to do it, they would do it. You know, so the mere presence of inequality, the mere fact that there are 40 million people living in poverty in the United States, that there are 40 million people in the United States suffering from something called food insecurity, which is just hunger, um, and that is coupled with the presence of more, more billionaires than any country in the history of the world, is mere proof that the United States does not live in a real democracy. I mean, we have certain democratic rights here and there. We have a fairly open society in many ways, but we don't have true democracy because true democracy is completely anathema to inequality. Logically, it just doesn't make any sense. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, you got your own uh, uh, commentary segment, which I can't wait to hear.
1: All righty. Well, uh, you know, Anna, this week I wanted to do something that I promised myself I would never do which is take down a viral hashtag resistance Twitter thread. And I know what you're thinking, people at home. Owning the libs? Come on. That's so easy. It's a cheap shot. But this one comes from a very specific liberal, and it's one who I find myself generally respecting more than 99% of other liberals, MSNBC's very own chris hayes and chris hayes is a really good guy and he seems like a really guy a good guy and he's actually pretty smart I mean, he started his career on what could be called the far left of the american political spectrum of the early aughts you know he was writing really sharp pieces for magazines like in these times and the nation which you know are pretty on the on the extreme left especially like in in that era um, where there was no jacobin for example Um, But as the 2010s rolled around, Chris started getting work hosting on MSNBC, and since then, his politics have become much more mainstream liberal. And this week, he had a viral Twitter thread in which he gleefully punched to his left, and I think it's worth taking a look at. It started, quote, for the first three or so years of Trump's term, there was a certain mode of analysis fairly common among self-styled savvy centrists, hashtag resistance-averse leftists and tons of conservatives that basically held that everyone freaking out about Trump was being overwrought and hysterical. Chris expounded on the point. The argument went, look, yes, he's a jerk and says crazy stuff, but the country is basically not that changed. Unemployment is low. Daily life continues as normal. There aren't tanks in the streets. You libs have lost your minds, obsessing over Russia and each new scandal, etc. This, my friends, is the world's biggest straw man. Chris is trying to play into the liberal horseshoe theory that the right and the left are basically the same and that only they, the liberals, are right. But to say that the left believes that everything was fine under Trump because unemployment was low and that daily life continues as normal is disingenuous at best. The left argument has always been that even under the good liberal Obama, the status quo in America was a daily moral catastrophe given that millions lived in poverty, millions were uninsured, hundreds of thousands lived on the streets, and the American war machine kept murdering people abroad. And Hayes is making a common liberal mistake, namely seeing Trump as the cause of daily misery in America, whereas the left sees Trump more as a symptom of the daily misery in America. Misery that the Democrats did almost nothing to ameliorate when they were in power under Obama. But, Chris continued, Now look where we are. There are 205,000 dead Americans and a 1,000 more every day. 7 million have been sickened. Tens of millions out of work. His own task force staffer has come forward to say he does not care about those deaths and thinks his own supporters are disgusting. Yes, all of those things are very bad. But under the liberal status quo with Obamacare... 30,000 people died unnecessarily every year because they lacked health insurance. And yes, those numbers have increased unacceptably under the pandemic, but the pandemic today is worse than it could have been had liberals passed, say, Medicare for All. But, Chris reminds us, Trump has done many, many bad things, like separating children from their parents at the border. Now, of course, this is an absolutely horrifying thing, but it is also true that under Obama, more people were deported than in any other administration in history. And to the left, like people like me, the destruction of millions of lives by physically removing them from their homes was and is unacceptable. But to liberals, it was cool when their guy did it. Extend this logic to anything else you like, say the drone war or climate policy. I always remind people that the Standing Rock protests were under Obama. And the reason why the left is averse to the hashtag resistance liberals is because their reaction to Trump goes one of two ways. The first... Is to hysterically scream over some superficial norm that Trump broke while then voting to give him more power. This became crystal clear when the Democrats were voting to impeach Trump, a totally empty gesture that they knew would do literally nothing given that the Senate uh, is controlled by the Republicans and they would never get rid of their own guy, while at the same time, the same exact time, voting to increase Trump's military budget by $738 billion. Now, of course, you don't hear much about this on MSNBC. MSNBC will have an absolute meltdown and give round-the-clock coverage when some random Russian guy emails Don Jr. to say something like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if Hillary Clinton were in jail? But when a dangerous madman like Trump gets more power, not a peep. The second tact that resistance liberals do to oppose Trump that drives the left crazy is that they oppose Trump from the right. Just two days ago, Joe Biden tweeted this. En el Día de la Virgen de las Mercedes, acompaño en solidaridad a todos los defensores de derechos humanos de Cuba, Nicaragua y Venezuela, y rezo por la liberación de todos los presos políticos. Wow. I almost wept. And back in May, Joe Biden tweeted this. Trump's international failures have cleared a path for Cuba to join the UN Human Rights Council. The horror, the horror. This would betray Cuba's political prisoners and further undermine U.S. diplomacy. As president, I will lead by empowering the Cuban people and defending human rights. So apparently, to the liberals, Trump, whose administration likely participated in the hilarious Bay of Piglets coup attempt in Venezuela, which was this year, by the way, whose administration rolled back the Obama-era detente with Cuba including a fresh round of sanctions just this week, is actually not hawkish enough on Cuba and Venezuela. But of course, the most glaring example of this is with the liberal obsession on fighting a new Cold War with Russia. And for that, Chris Hayes and his network MSNBC deserve a whole lot of blame. Of course, Obama famously and rightly advocated advocated for an easing of tensions with Russia.
3: Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat. Because a few months ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda, you said Russia. In the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back.
1: <laughs> but all of that has gone out the window in the last four years under Trump. And again, liberals do this thing where they only see above the surface... They go apoplectic when Trump says something nice about Putin, but then ignore the fact that, for example, in June of this year, Trump sent 1,000 more American troops to Poland to, quote, bolster NATO's eastern flank against Russian aggression. I mean, that's just an incredibly aggressive move. Imagine what U.S. policymakers would do if Russia sent 1,000 troops to Mexico. But of course, none of that is discussed. Instead, Chris Hayes, who back in 2008, when he was at The Nation, praised something called the Pundit Accountability Project as something that was, quote, long overdue, gave favorable airtime on his own show to the absolutely bonkers, insane, 1,000% fake news Jonathan Chait assertion that Trump has been a Russian intelligence asset since 1987, Did the Trump campaign, did the candidate at the heart of it conspire with Russia to subvert American democracy or and does Russia have some kind of leverage over Donald Trump? In a new cover story from New York magazine, writer Jonathan Chait argues we have not allowed ourselves to consider the full range of possibilities. Chait lays out what could be considered the worst case scenario for Trump-Russia collusion, that Donald Trump has been a Russian intelligence asset since 1987. Yeah, I just want to take a pause here and really underscore what is seriously being discussed in this cable news segment, which is based on a cover story in New York Mag, one of the three or four most prominent liberal magazines, that Donald Trump has been essentially a Russian spy since 1987. I mean, 1987, not to mention the fact that the Soviet Union was still around back then, but Trump himself was a real estate goon trying to get with Heather Locklear at the Vanity Fair Christmas party only to turn her down because she was very nasty to him or whatever. But let's continue with the segment.
2: Everyone always says, well, this has been Trump's view forever. All this stuff he's saying about the Western allies splitting us apart from the West and, and how, he's, how he's sort of pissing on them all the time and, and saying, you know, we should let them go their own way. That's just what he's always thought. It's not really what he's always thought. It's what he's thought since 1987. He never thought that before then, or at least he never said it before then. And in 1987 is when he, he went to Moscow and he's feted by the Russians and in, in tours Moscow. And then he comes back. Then he starts talking about running for president for the first time. And then he starts talking for the first time about how our allies are a bunch of freeloaders and we should kick him to the curb.
1: Yeah, and we should say that he is. I mean, I just want to be clear here. He is really consistent on that point. Right. The the idea that this sort of zero sum view that our allies are free riding and we're paying for it. He takes out full page ads at one hundred thousand dollars. He sounds identical to how he does now. Right. The idea that like we're getting abused, we're getting taken for granted and we're paying for other people's defense
2: were paying for the people's defense who were defending against the russians right at that point particularly yes so it really dovetails with russian foreign policy interests then and now
1: you know i can't stress just how irresponsible this kind of thing is i mean you know who watches cable news right boomers and think about your own boomer mother and father they came up in an age where if the tv man said it it must be true Certainly, both of my parents are like that. If the man on the TV says something, it's because it's probably true. But of course, this is not true. The central claims of Russiagate that MSNBC and Chris Hayes have been pushing for years have all fallen apart. The p tape is not real. The Compromat does not exist. Trump has not been a Russian spy since 1987. Robert Mueller exited our lives as quickly as he entered them, having done literally nothing. But Russiagate was the central plank of the liberal opposition to Trump. Not the horrifying policies that harmed actual people, not the gutting of what little was left of the environmental protections, not the anti-labor fanatics he's appointed to the National Labor Relations Board, as Paul Prescott outlined this week in Jacobin. Everyone go and read that. But most of all, the liberals don't understand that Trump can only exist because of decades of the failure of liberal governance. This was something that Chris Hayes himself once wrote about quite eloquently in his 2012 book Twilight of the Elites, where he described the sequences of bipartisan failures from the late 90s through the aughts with things like Enron, the Catholic Church abuse, the Iraq War, and the financial crisis, and how those failures corroded our society and our democracy. But here's Chris in 2020 concluding his viral thread with this stirring call to arms. And yet, You still see this savvy arm's length mode of analysis across the spectrum. Oh, calm down. Libs, is it really so bad? More Americans have died in the last six months than during any six month period in 100 years. Yes, it's that bad. Wake the hell up. Yes, it is that bad. But this is not new. It's been bad. And yes, the Republicans and Trump are evil and have always been evil and will always be evil. But liberals and the Democratic Party have been complicit in that as well. Wake the hell up.
0: Yeah, you know, you you raised That's a lot of got. really great points. Um, you raised a lot of good points, and I, I loved how comprehensive you were. Um, there is one area where I, I think I agree a little bit with Chris Hayes um, and disagree with some of the narrative coming from the left, right? I agree. I agree. Uh, Liberals have paved the way for Trump and you gave perfect examples of that. And I do think that what we see from mainstream media is this like, you know, this need to make Trump out to be like incredibly unique in his awfulness uh, w- while completely ignoring some of the similar actions that took place prior to Trump, uh, you know, getting elected into office. The one thing that I think the left can do a little better on is I think they like kind of stop at, well, things things were bad before, right? And they don't really give any credibility to some of the very specific ways in which Trump is worse, right? So Trump really does rely on dividing the country in like the worst possible mm-hmm. way. And I'm sure other presidents have done that, but not to the same extent. Like Trump wittingly, intentionally, wants Americans to hate each other, to fight each other. We have paramilitary groups in the country now going around murdering people, and you have the right wing justifying those murders. Um, you also have the, you know, the expiration of the consent decree that would prevent Republicans from sending armed law enforcement to in-person polling locations uh, you know, with the effort to in- intimidate voters. Well, that consent decree has expired, and what did Republicans do? What did the Trump campaign do? they immediately hired 50,000 armed people to show up to in-person voting locations throughout mm-hmm. the country. So, like I think that the left makes so many great points, but in order to really make those points in a credible way, they also need to acknowledge some of the very specific ways in which Trump is particularly awful. You get what I'm saying?
1: No, totally. I mean, and I, I again, I think that what Trump in that and that kind of cut both cuts both ways with Trump in that it's 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 very clarifying in that he mm. um it's it's like a mask off situation it's like we're not even pretending anymore we're not doing the kabuki theater anymore we're just kind of saying the thing that you know we we really mean you know like George W Bush was very skilled at the sort of rhetorical uh um kind of outreaches to people even like in the wake of 9-11 to like people like Muslims and stuff like that. Like he didn't do, like imagine if Trump was like after 9-11, he would be like, you know, all the Muslims, we just just kill them all. You know, whereas George Mm -hmm. Bush like understood that rhetorically he had to kind of make that, that claimed to be the president of all, the whole country, George Bush was also famously very kind of um, uh, rhetorically uh, positive towards Hispanics. Um, he did not seek to divide the country, especially along racial lines, the way Trump explicitly does, time and time again. And of course, that's very, very, very bad. You know, but I think that there is. I think that in general, the reason why I feel like I need to push back on the sort of liberal critiques of Trump that are purely almost purely superficial like rarely do they Mm -hmm. have to do with like concrete policies which is and 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 the proof of that is the liberal nostalgia for george bush
0: i know because he
1: knew how to play the game you know a little bit better um yeah i mean at the time they thought he was ridiculous but now there's like this this kind of nostalgia even though george bush like from a concrete policy standpoint if we're like counting bodies you know like you know he started the iraq war like the greatest crime probably in in 30, 40 years in world history. Um, Yeah, and every every
0: president, you know, has um, further expanded upon that type of foreign policy. Like Obama did that. Um, He expanded upon, uh, you know, drone strikes and things like that. And then, yeah, it paves the way for someone like Trump to come into office. And Trump has already surpassed uh, drone strikes compared to the Obama administration. I mean, and that's the thing, like... I think that is a completely accurate description of how this all went down. I think part of my issue and I, I think where I agree with Chris Hayes a little bit is the left will criticize Obama for his drone policy, but then they just kind of stop there and and kind of refuse to acknowledge that Trump has taken that policy And put it on steroids like the like the criticism does also need to extend to Trump. And I think sometimes the way that the left comes off and I don't think they intentionally do this. I think it's a problem with messaging sometimes because the left wants to contextualize things um, and explain things in a much more robust, detailed way. Sometimes they forget to finish the explanation by, you know, ending with what Trump is able to do. And how he 's able to take these awful policies and go even further because liberals have paved the way, you get what i 'm mm-hmm. saying
1: no totally, and you know I think that the the sort of tactical uh, debate that can be had uh, for that is that you know I think many people on the left kind of instinctively feel that their immediate political goal needs to be some sort of uh, takeover of the Democratic Party that without that we 're just going to see you know, further and further devolvement of the country into this kind of like right wing uh, hell state that without Mm -hmm. without sort of being able to take over the only opposition party that 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 they're they're hopeless to stop that. So, you know, I mean, what are we going to do if we you know, we have to like kind of get between they're standing in between us and fighting the right, you know, you're right, Um, right and And until we can do that we can 't be in the position to really like fight the right like if we 're leaving that to if we 're ceding that fight to liberals right now because they 're the ones that, in the positions of power in the sort of opposition um, no they 're never going to be yet. able to do it they 're not just not going to be yeah. able to do it so kind of the immediate goal of of the left should be in some way um, you know a defeat of the current iteration of the democratic party if that makes sense and th- there's all yeah, kinds of tactical total- issues that come up with that you know like i mean namely whether like it's better for biden uh, or trump to win on that on that narrow tactical ground right like i Mm -hmm. happen to believe we're probably better off with biden in there than with trump but there there is tactical questions right but i think that 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 rhetorical um that, that that you know the right's gonna think we're like they they look at they look to their left and see this like undifferentiated mass of like Maoists or something you know it doesn't matter like <laughs> to them what the you know like it doesn't make a huge difference to them like if the criticisms are from libs or from or from leftists you know like it's the real kind of goal is 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 liberals i mean i, I at least that's how i, I can understand it
0: yeah I, I i say this often especially after um what we've experienced with these uh resistance members of congress We need to know our enemies, and you're absolutely right. Our biggest enemies right now are these neoliberal lawmakers and people like Nancy Pelosi. I wrote a piece Mm for um, The Hill that listed all the different ways in which Nancy Pelosi has actually aided and abetted Donald Trump. And of course, Mm -hmm. heads exploded. People came after me on Twitter. I don't care um, because I show my work and the evidence is there. Literally on the same day, the same day that Congress, (laughs) the House is listing the impeachment charges against Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi does a press conference where she's like, would you look at that? We worked with Donald Trump to pass his rebranded version of NAFTA. Isn't he so great? Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? So anyway, I I think, uh, yeah, I I love the way you tackled that. I think your um, response to Chris Hayes is is on the mark. And yeah, I, 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 I saw a lot of outrage toward what he had to tweet in that thread, um, and I was really hoping that someone would address it in a comprehensive way like you did. So thank you.
1: Glad I could help. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, uh, we have our interview next, and uh, it's very topical. Uh, we're going to talk yeah. about the Supreme Court uh, with Samuel Moyne. He's a professor of jurisprudence and a professor of law at Yale. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me. Nice to be with you. Wait, Yale nice is one of the good you. ones, right? Uh you know, I hope there no, are some okay. good apples that, that, uh, <laughs> okay. at in some of these barrels. <laughs>
0: so I'll I'll start off with right. um, you know, what's currently happening with the Supreme Court and how Donald Trump is very likely to choose Amy Coney Barrett as his Supreme Court nominee, and so there have been a bunch of reports about what Congress can do, specifically what Democrats can do to try to, um, you know, utilize procedural rules to prevent this vote from happening. But when I look at it carefully, it doesn't really seem like these procedural tactics are going to work. And so I wanted to get your take on that.
4: I think, I think you're right. You know, it's, it's clear now that, um, Donald Trump's going to announce, uh, Amy Coney Barrett as, as his nominee in, in a little under three hours. She's left South Bend and is flying to Washington as we speak. Um, it's almost unthinkable that uh, the Democrats can stop the train that tr- not so much Trump, but Mitch McConnell has, has started uh, towards its inevitable destination. Once the Filibuster was eliminated for for judicial appointments, and then for Supreme Court uh, confirmations, it, it just takes fifty votes, and there are various procedural um, votes, like the vote to you know calling for cloture. But um, as long as McConnell keeps his caucus together, and it seems like he has over fifty, won't even need Mike Pence's vice presidential vote to break a tie. He can overcome all of those. Hurdles. So, um, you know, we're going to have a big national debate now about uh, Judge Barrett. But I I think it'd be better to step back and think about what uh, what the left, including liberals, should think about the Supreme Court and this repetitious, um, you know, psychodrama we have whenever it's time to replace a justice.
1: Yeah, and I want to I want to kind of uh, ask about that because you know you I think that this one is going to be so traumatic to a lot of liberals that there some of them are even um, seriously talking about um, even things that are like court packing, which w- which would have been un- unthinkable like twenty years ago. Like, what's your general take on on that?
4: Well, so there are a couple of things that are happening. You know, with generational change, this show, so many other uh, you know, amazing contributions. The left is rising, uh, and Mitch McConnell knows it. Uh, the, the, the liberals, um, have, have maintained this kind of, you know, waning faith in a, 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 a centrist or neutral Supreme court. Um, but it's, it's not been credible for many years, but, um, at least as long as Chief Justice John Roberts switch sides once in a while or, mm. you know, another justice surprised them, they they could always come back and live in the illusion. But this appointment will make for six conservatives. Um, and there, there are just going to be many more um, bad decisions for liberals. You know, the background, though, is that, it you know, you just discussed this, You know, a lot of people are going to vote for Joe Biden, and it looks like um, McConnell is making an an enormous bet. Um, He might lose Senate control, including his own seat. But as Thomas Jefferson, you know, remarked back at at the beginning when there were elites challenged by the people, the elites, as he said, could flee into the judiciary as into a stronghold. And Mm. it seems as if McConnell wants to establish generational control over this incredibly powerful branch of government. And if he does, it matters a lot less if he loses, if Donald Trump loses in November, just because um, the judiciary is so powerful in our national life to our detriment.
0: Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit, because... Americans have been sold this idea that we have this wonderful system of checks and balances. You have these equal branches of government that uh, carry out these checks and balances. But it appears as though uh, the judicial branch has uh, accumulated much more power um, and has created or made for this uh, seemingly undemocratic uh, system. At least that's the way I see it. So I I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that and how it came to be that the judicial branch became so powerful.
4: Well, you know, I took civics and, you know, I went to American high school and I, I learned with uh, all of my classmates and fellow Americans that without a judiciary we, that's effectively empowered, especially to defend constitutional rights, you'd have tyranny of the majority, if not outright totalitarianism. And it's really what distinguishes America from all the bad countries. Um, And it is true that America has a much more powerful judiciary than any even liberal democracy. Um, Now, the truth is that the founders uh, back in the day set up a a range of uh, elite institutions to make sure that the people didn't rule. And we're very familiar now with the electoral college and indeed the Senate, which shifts so much power away from majorities. Um, But the judiciary, especially the power of judicial review, the power uh, that judges really took, because it's not in the constitution um, to invalidate federal legislation was also part of the protection of the perquisites of the wealthy and powerful. And You know, this was most glaring before the Civil War when it was a court that in Dred Scott and Prigby, Pennsylvania, many other cases defended the slaveholding order, went far, you know, further than they needed to. But it it became most glaring um, after the Civil War with the rise of, you know, the Gilded Age. And there the, the federal judiciary was often in the pocket of the wealthy Uh, defending um, what they called freedom of contract against rising workers movements and call for, you know, regulation of um, the, of, of, of bargains between labor and capital, you know, um, you know, uh, regulations, making sure children didn't work um, limitations to working hours and so forth and so on. Franklin Roosevelt had to face down the judiciary to overcome that really fifty-year resistance that, in the name of the Constitution, the judiciary posed to um, popular legislation, and it seems like we're heading into another such period. Um, really, the the court has been, you know, centrist on the best of days, reactionary most others for a number of decades, uh, contributing nothing to racial justice. Um, it neoliberal in its jurisprudence, ignoring class, ignoring structural justice. There was, liberals will say, um, a, a period in between FDR and us, the Earl Warren's court, in which it was this priceless institution, which shows we can't do without it. But, you know, I and many others firmly believe that it's a good thing that we're seeing that the judiciary needs to be face down. if Biden wins, if in some, you know, Future, we can imagine AOC or some other others want to pass a, a powerful HR one or a Green New Deal. There will be another confrontation with the Supreme Court, um, and and we have to decide what do we do. What what are our options in that case?
1: Yeah, it, you know, and I, I want to discuss some of those options because you know in in the in a piece you uh, in a, well in an interview with Jacobin you wrote that the historic left project, which some of us have been trying to revive, was always to disempower the court. Socialists in the early 20th century denounced the court for its defensive laissez-faire capitalism, and the left originated a ton of reform proposals. You mentioned how judicial review uh, is not in the Constitution, that they, the court just kind of asserted that right um, at one point, and people just kind of accepted it. Uh, I know Matt Brunig uh, has been talking a lot about just if a president could, in theory, just ignore Ignore the court if they outlaw a lot. What do you? What are some of the reform proposals? Is that would that be too drastic, or what? 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 What is? Your, what are your thoughts? Like, how? How should the left disempower the court?
4: So you know, it, it it would be quite feasible if a president, in Congress, backed by a popular movement, just you know, um, ha- had the backing. Um, there, there, there's no in particular reason um, the the political branches and you know, with the confidence of a political movement, couldn't ignore the court that what the court says isn't self-enforcing. Um, you know, most of us are operating in a universe where we, we want to, you know, figure out what the right, you know, um, w- what what the right form of the judiciary is. We'll always need, even you know, a socialist government will need judges to interpret and enforce their laws, um, and so. Certainly you can't ignore, um, if it, it, you know, if, if you can maintain a coalition cause it will freak a lot of people out. Um, but you know, sooner or later, you need to have a constructive program. And there, there are really two, there's, there's, there are two other alternatives beyond just ignoring the court. One is, um, court packing, which a lot of people have had on the brain really since Mitch McConnell, um, ignore Barack Obama's last nomination. And and eventually, once Trump was elected, put Neil Gorsuch on on the court. And it's basically, um, you know, Franklin Roosevelt's old solution. It didn't go through in in 1937 when um, Franklin Roosevelt proposed it, but it's like burned in our memory. Um, And a lot of uh, folks want to like, get the court back by putting some liberal justices on the bench to kind of counteract and negate the ones that Trump has gotten up there. The trouble is that the baseline sucked, and the baseline of the power the court exercises is intolerable. So, getting some liberals up there, you know, it might uh, lead to better results from case to case, but not in the long term um, because you haven't really thought about you know, design, how do we design a democracy um, in which we don't shunt so much power to a council of elders to kind of censor our laws. So that's where we get into other proposals than court packing. And, you know, I'm not advocating one, but I'm just um, arguing that we need to look at reforms that just make the court less powerful, like most courts, most places um, on earth that have a role but don't have the role that uh, they've been given in the United States, which is basically to rewrite the law sometimes on behalf of the wealthy and powerful. Um, So examples would include, um, you know, if Congress passes an exciting law like HR one or the green new deal bill, it could um, include in the law provision that, that it can't be challenged in, in the federal courts. Um, We could also kind of more creatively try to insist that the Supreme Court decide a certain um, number of cases under a supermajority rule. Right now, um, you know, five people can invalidate uh, Obamacare uh, or or big parts of it. And, you know, actually, because it's it's because of Ruth Ginsburg's death, um, the whole law may fall now for reasons we can get into. Um, if you had like a seven two or eight one or even a unanimity requirement maybe you say when when that many judges of different ideological stripes can agree that a law is noxious maybe we ought to preserve their role but when it's five four or six three as as some cases are going to be now just because there are six conservatives we shouldn't allow that um, censorship to take place
0: you know that's that Supermajority argument is really interesting. And I haven't heard a lot of people make it. Is that something that's really been discussed seriously? Because, of course, I've heard a lot about packing the courts. Um, Ro Khanna, for instance, Congressman Ro Khanna, um, he's proposed uh, term limits 18 years rather than allowing people to have these lifelong, um, you know, uh, roles in the Supreme Court. Has anyone considered um, maybe changing the way these decisions are hand, hand, handed down by focusing more on a supermajority as opposed to um, a simple majority?
4: Absolutely. Um, you know, the the remedies I'm discussing, which are, let's call them the disempowering remedies, are actually the ones that the socialists um, devised and argued for in, you know, the 1920s and, and, and 30s. Um, it's, it's kind of confusing why um, court packing would have become so prominent, but for the fact that it's just so famous in the history of the Democratic Party. Um, term limits don't do a lot, especially if they're prospective, because um, basically they grandfather in. Um, all the, the judges all, ha, who have already been appointed, including many Supreme Court justices who've already outlived their welcome. And with a lot of these folks, if you started them on an 18-year clock, well, that's almost as bad as, as what we've got now. Um, it'd be fine if you said, you know, Amy Coney Barrett can only serve 18 years, but consider the damage that the Supreme court is going to do in that period. So term limits is like um, has, has made the rounds in the past 25 years, partly because it's so weak, a remedy court packing has been talked about, you know, re- really recently and it's gained traction. Um, and some of us want to, you know, kind of, Dredge out these older, we think better solutions. Now, note you could use them in tandem. I mean, I think it's almost certain that if Biden wins and the Senate changes hands, there will be some kind of court packing. It'll probably be modest because Biden is modest. Um, he's, he's actually condemned court packing. But if Amy Coney Barrett gets up there, I, I, I can't imagine that there won't be a, a, a lot of people who want to add two seats to the Supreme court, but that doesn't mean you can't disempower the institution too, because you have Mm -hmm. not just short run goals, but long run goals. And again, putting two people up there um, who are Democrats kind of um, creates um, the status quo anti Gorsuch, but it was already terrible. And, you know, the court's been, the court's been the most business friendly court in a hundred years. And that's been for decades, you know, many of the justices we look up to, like, uh, Ruth Ginsburg and Elena Kagan, liberals, have been part of that, if you like, neoliberal bench. And so I think progressives, the left, have to hold out for more ambitious results than just going back to the old corruption.
1: You, you've mentioned the FDR court packing episode a couple times, and it's it's such a uh, – it's so ingrained in the liberal conventional wisdom that when FDR attempted the court packing, um, it was just this like – hubristic overreach. It was an unmitigated disaster. Don't ever try that again. (laughs) Even FDR, the greatest man, you know, to ever do the presidency, uh, couldn't pull it off. Um, Don't touch the court. It's like kryptonite. Is that, is that an accurate read of the history of what happened in in the 1930s with FDR, the sort of conventional wisdom that, you know, this was just kind of, you know, something that you should never touch again? No. Um, you know, it's it's true that um, in the end,
4: the Congress refused to approve FDR's court packing plan, but it was an incredibly, you know, contingent thing near miss. An Arkansas senator named Joseph Robinson, like dropped dead a couple of days before <laughs> the, the vote. And, you know, that meant it didn't come to pass. But actually, even by that time in the summer of 1937 the court had shifted. So a lot of the talk around these reforms is, um, you know, well meant by people like me, but a lot of others may want to treat all of this talk as, as creating a credible threat for the justices in hopes that they will move a little Mm bit. Um, you know, my trouble with that is that, um, Roberts already does move on occasion. Like all, mo- what he mostly cares about, aside from right wing results, is the institutional standing of uh, the Supreme Court. And um, you know the the fact that he changes you know sides in a couple of cases, you know, w- leaves the overall output of the Supreme Court still totally unacceptable. And there's also this kind of deeper political question even if they get to some right answers on occasion, do we want to shift democratic power to this council of elders? You know, mm-hmm. Congress has really, um, you know, abandoned its role in, in our lifetimes um, because it's been able to get judges to, you know, do, do its dirty work. And that's just not democracy as, as I understand it. And I hope a lot of others. So um you know, court packing um, c- could work, no reason why not, especially if it's a modest plan. And it could also work as a threat that lead the justices, as happened in the 1930s, to change their tune. Um, the justice had 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 condemned the New Deal before 1937 and then approved it um, and said it was compatible with the Constitution. So that mm. was understood to be a huge win, and Roosevelt, in a, in a brilliant um, address on Constitution Day in fall 1937, like took a victory lap. If you want to read one document about kind of you know what the left should think about the Supreme Court, read it. It's online. Um, in it, he says we should care about the tyranny of the minority backed up by the Supreme Court, not just the tyranny of the majority against minorities. So. Um, I think we're back in a situation. Maybe court packing has a role, but even if it does, if we don't disempower the court, it'll come back to haunt us.
0: You know, I love the point that you're making about uh, Congress uh, basically allowing for the Supreme Court to do its dirty work. I think that's part of the reason why you see Congress um, enjoy such a low approval rating. Um, But, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me, um, it was a recent Twitter thread you put out. I don't know if it was in the context of the Supreme Court issue, but you were talking about uh, some of the hyperbolic language that exists out there and how it does disempower people, could disempower people and convince them that their uh, participation in our electoral process, for instance, isn't worth it or the activism and organizing isn't worth it. So I I agree with you on that point. But at the same time, it's really interesting to see what the hyperbolic language focuses on when it comes to the Supreme Court, a lot of it is about what's going to happen to reproductive rights. And to be fair, I think that's a legitimate concern, especially with Amy Coney Barrett's, um, you know, past statements about reproductive rights and things like that. However, the issue that comes up over and over again with the Supreme Court, even without Amy Court, Amy Coney Barrett's uh, participation in the Supreme Court is how often the Supreme Court protects corporate interests and so what i'm actually much more worried about what i think is more likely to happen and maybe i'm being naive on the reproductive rights issue is that they're going to strike down the affordable care act and americans with pre-existing conditions have no protections at all um so can you just like weigh in on that a little bit um because i just think that that's more of a threat and there's like virtually no hyperbolic language on that
4: yeah no great question you know, that, that that tweet storm that you're citing um, was not about the Supreme Court. Um, uh, it was actually about kind of the fears of coup, a coup now on, on, on Election Day that have, have kind of haunted a, a lot of folks um, really since the day Donald Trump was elected the first time. And I'm not going to defend Chris Hayes from you know, Nando's onslaught, but he did retweet (laughs) and agree with my little tweet storm. There you you go. You're, you're raising, um, kind of another set of issues. Um, there's no doubt the Supreme court has done some good things and, you know, Brown v board of education, um, is at the top of the list. Roe v Wade, um, is a great feminist, uh, breakthrough. Um, But there are a couple of things. First, you know, we don't give out Uzis just because there are imaginable situation in which someone uses an Uzi for a good cause, you know, and those results, you know, maybe could have, should have been achieved in another way, especially since now, you know, to a startling extent, the public schools are resegregated um, Mm. and, the abortion right where popular majorities don't want it, namely the U S South is almost unavailable practically. Now that's not to say that, you know, the, the death of Roe V Wade wouldn't be a a terrible thing and, and wouldn't have the, the, you know, outrageous consequences that a lot of people associate with it. On the other hand um, if we don't convince our fellow citizens to share our values, um, and get judges um, in a kind of shortcut or quick fix impose them on high. It, it could be that you know there, there's there's more alienation from the values we want to propagate rather than more acceptance. Mm-hmm. And as you say, um, against the the modicum of good that the Supreme Court really achieved for a pretty brief period in the 1950s and 60s, um, we've got just the the you know, barrage of, of outrageous, you know, horror that they've inflicted, whether it's letting the executive do what he wants long before Donald Trump's travel ban, you know, the the, the Supreme Court has never set right the, you know, the, the presidentialism in war. And then in, in business, and, you know, really the social contract, you know, many constitutions have economic and social rights, like, you know, health and housing ours doesn't the judges would never find it would not be able to enforce it um and it's true that because of ginsburg's death and absence if john roberts chooses to let obamacare die um after you know personally salvaging one piece of it a few years ago it it will it will um it, it will be off the books. So, you know, my conclusion is that if we have um, a program, you know, that the liberals and the left can get behind the left, pushing the liberals as much as they can, it should be enacted via the legislature and not let the judges, you know, obstruct it. Because we've been living with that, you know, for, for really decades now. Obamacare is an excellent example. Why?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Court is not your friend. Um, just switching gears for the for the last question, really quickly, a little bit. Um, it, it it is related to the court, but you've you've talked you've re- written a lot in the past about how human rights uh, or the uh, like the the modern conception of human rights have been kind of a neoliberal construction um, that avoids issues of class and issues of exploitation and domination. Um, and one of the th- common arguments you hear in favor of the court is that it sort of protects the human rights of the minority against the tyranny of the majority like if you know I don't know if maybe like the 50 plus 1 percent of the country wanted to vote to like uh, make gay people illegal or something Um, in a different framework in which there was you know not this kind of current version of the court a disempowered court as you're advocating how how would that work well,
4: you know, it, it's true that to the extent we disempower, you know, counter-majoritarian forces, we have to get the majority um to advocate you know moral policies, but that's already true. Um and in 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 exchange for like creating this insurance system against, you know, the excesses of majorities, actually the court has helped the wrong minorities. Um so it's undoubtedly true that the court has played a big role in, in let's call it, you know, in Marxian terms, formal emancipation. It's made African-Americans equal on paper. It's made women and more recently uh, homosexuals equal on, on paper, including giving them the right to, um, to marry same sex. Um, And yet It's all done in a class free way that undermines the very equality that it's intended to um, promote. And on the other side of the ledger, um, it's it's reinventing all of the rights that in the abstract we do care about to favor the powerful few free speech, which, you know, we think would die absent a powerful court has been perverted into a protection of the wealthy in cases like citizens United into a union busting principle in Mm. a case like Janice freedom of religion, you know, which we can debate has been um, interpreted by the current Supreme court as a device to limit the sway of anti-discrimination law in cases like masterpiece cake shop. So what you get is like, formal equality with the one hand, and, you know, neoliberalism and reaction with the other, and neither one is contributing to structural equality. So that's on us. And, you know, we create our political world. And I think we should have learned by now that, you know, asking our grandparents for, for to kind of keep us honest, is not the way to go. Um, mm-hmm. they, they're yeah. they not going to help us and they will hurt us.
0: <laughs> all right. Um, Samuel Moyne, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us, um, you know, to have this thoughtful conversation. I hope you'll yeah. come back soon.
4: Oh, anytime. Nice to meet you all.
0: All right. We're going to take wow. a quick break. And when we come back, we've got some salt for you guys. back, took a little break. Um, I really love that interview. Uh, That was the most thoughtful conversation I've had uh, on the Supreme Court. You know, just keeping it real, um, not fear-mongering in any way, little historical context. It's not a big deal. It's what we do here at Jacobin.
1: (laughs) What I like about Samuel is that he, uh, like a lot of these conversations around the Supreme Court uh, exist on the kind of theoretical plane you know, they're always kind of, like, thought exercises and theoretical exercises. Yeah. Like, Samuel evaluates the court as an actually existing thing and just looks at, okay, no, this is, what they, this is what they've done. It doesn't matter, like, in theory what they're supposed to be doing. Here's what they're actually doing. And the fact is that the Supreme Court, 99% of the time, has been a bulwark against popular democracy to improve people's lives. It's been absolutely an institution of reaction within the system. Um, which is why they kind of allowed judicial review to happen in the first place. But yeah, um, it was interesting.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, David Griscom, um, who works on The Michael Brooks Show, um, they've continued to do The Michael Brooks Show, and I know I've been plugging that show a lot, but um, you should check it out because it's very good. He went on this tear about, um, you know, the upside of court packing is just disempowering the court, making it a little weaker. Um, so, you know, short term that, that would be a positive, but, um, I love all of the historical context that Samuel Moyne brings up and what really needs to happen in order to have a true democratic process and system in Mm. this country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's move on to salt and look, salt used to be, we're going to dunk on Dave Rubin, (laughs) but it's just low hanging fruit. So I, I, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, Someone who's also low-hanging fruit, but he said something that I think, unfortunately, is shared by many people um, Mm -hmm. who might not have the guts to say it so publicly, but it should be Mm -hmm. addressed. So now that Donald Trump gets to stack the Supreme Court uh, with conservative judges, pro-corporate judges, individuals who are likely to strike down the Affordable Care Act, Many Americans are rightly concerned about losing health care coverage if they have pre-existing conditions. For all the flaws that the Affordable Care Act has, and we've discussed them at length, uh, there were some certain protections through Mm. the Affordable Care Act that are important, protections for pre-existing conditions. Uh, It's not talked about a lot, but it also helped to expand Medicaid programs on a state level, which would then help to ensure that people living in poverty would have health care coverage. All of that is really um, under threat now. And so Eric Erickson chimed in on this debate and said the following. I don't think the government should force coverage for pre-existing conditions. I think it is bad policy that will lead to increased healthcare costs and diminish the need for personal responsibility.
2: Mm. Eric yeah.
0: Erickson is a trash human being. Um, yeah. yeah. Because healthcare is not supposed to be a commodity. And to make this ridiculous, simplistic argument that we can keep healthcare costs low simply by focusing on what individuals can do on an individual level is stupid. It's stupid. No one decides or chooses to get cancer. Right. You know, it's just anyway. No
1: matter how much personal responsibility you exercise, like you could get, I don't know, some disease that I probably never even heard of. It just sometimes there's just bad luck. So no amount, like no amount of uh, personal responsibility can can account for that. But Eric Erickson is an interesting figure in american politics because um i remember remember like uh, on tyt maybe a couple weeks ago we talked about that staffer who was just kind of honest about uh it was like a staffer for like a north carolina guy who just said like yeah no if you don't if you don't have health insurance and you have cancer like yeah you you should die and you can't afford it yeah sorry you should yeah you know he uh, they commit the the sin, the biggest sin in American politics, which is just telling the truth. And that's the Honesty, truth. He's being yeah. honest about his his views. But Eric Erickson in particular is is the almost perfect example of a trend that has happened in in the last 10 or so years that Alex Perrine talks about a lot, which is that in the past, The sort of denizens of the Republican Party, the sort of leaders of the Republican Party kind of understood that, you know, they needed to feed red meat to the rubes every once in a while um, to keep them like whipped up and voting Republican. But really all they cared about was like lowering capital gains taxes and doing wars abroad and stuff and like all these kind of hot button social issues like they to themselves didn't really believe it. They read the Wall Street Journal. They didn't listen to right wing talk radio, like which was like for the crazies and for the and for the rubes at one point roughly around 10 years ago roughly around when the tea party came about the sort of inmates took over the asylum so to speak <laughs> and mm-hmm. those people those the the rubes are now the people in power in the republican party and eric Erickson, that trend the, the transition that he did from like red state when he was like a, the editor of red state which at the time was seen as like this like crazy right wing blog um and to being a be. cnn on CNN, like he was a CNN contributor. This was like they, they hired him yeah. kind of to be like the Tea Party guy, you know, and at the time it was seen as like this crazy hire, you know, like now all the Republicans, like even like all of them, um, are Eric Erickson's, you know, like that's that transition yeah. has been fully complete.
0: No, I love that you brought that up. That's such a good point. And I mean, if you look at the other side, if you look at um, true like leftists, how many leftist contributors does CNN have?
1: No, none.
0: I mean, it was... Zero. It was, I, when, when Bernie was still in the... You know, when the primaries were happening, he was still... Uh, had a good chance of, of winning the primaries. Yeah. Um, Chris Cuomo was the only one who ever brought either me or Cenk mm-hmm. onto his show yeah. to make a robust case for Bernie. And I give him credit for that. But that was yeah. the exception, right? I mean, yeah. I haven't seen a progressive... Or you I think from like a cold CNN.
1: capitalist point of view, they would recognize like, go, oh, look at all these people. They love Bernie. We need some Bernie people to talk. About. Maybe we'll get them to tune in every once in a while. And like, no, it's like, it's so, it's so outside of their, like, they just don't even consider it. It's like as if it didn't yeah. exist. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, it is crazy. And ugh. For me, there's just this, on, on every major issue that really has uh, like a fundamental negative impact on our lives, right? We keep hearing this argument, not just from right-wingers, by the way. I hear it from liberals as well. This notion of personal responsibility. Mm. On the climate yeah. issue, liberals pushed yeah. personal and have continued yeah. to push personal responsibility as opposed to keeping... Corporations that have contributed the most to climate change accountable for their actions, right? So, right. you know, we're, we're sucking our cocktails through paper straws that disintegrate in like two seconds because we're doing our part for the environment. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, you have Gavin Newsom signing new permits for fracking in the state of California. It, it's nah. infuriating.
1: It's a great point. I mean, I, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. But it really is just the other side of the same coin. It's, it's you know, yeah, it's meatless Mondays. It's recycling, yeah. which turns out to be a giant scam, apparently. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's all pushing it onto the individual rather than looking for actual collective solutions that... Um, change the distribution of power. No, it's exactly, it's exactly, I'd never, yeah, that's a good point.
0: And it's, (laughs) and when you really like put it in context, it's even worse because we subsidize these industries, Mm. which then turn around and destroy the environment. We have to pay the costs of this destroyed economy, like uh, environment, Mm -hmm. right? Like we have to deal with the ramifications while they've made their profits. And then on top of that, the onus is on us, right? Like, oh, would you look at that? Climate change is real. We need to do something. No more, you know. Pla- and by the way, I'm fine with banning plastic bags and plastic straws. Like, yeah. But my issue is that the onus seems to always 100% be on us as individuals when in reality, the people in positions of power who have, um, you know, taken advantage of uh, the environment and have taken advantage of this commod- uh, commodified healthcare model, you know, they're they're off the hook. We don't have to worry about yeah. them. It just it infuriates yeah. me. And one other example of that, real quick, was uh, this tweet by New York Times Business. Mm. Uh, John my Mackey, my favorite business. The, Jeez, this is John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods, blames obesity on bad decisions by consumers rather than lack Mm. of access to healthy food. And here's a quote. It's less about access and more about people making poor choices, mostly due to ignorance.
1: Mm. The rubes, you know, they're just too ignorant. They like their hot pockets and their McDonald's and they're just all fat and gross. They just shopped at Whole Foods and gotten, you know uh if vegan matcha tea or whatever like they'd it, be better off
0: if they only spent $25 on a canister of pre-cut cucumber in cucumber water then they would be okay they're just yeah. ignorant that's the problem
1: they're just ignorant yeah yeah <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I it's just we've yeah, but it's like that that it's been in it's been absorbed because it's been beaten down into us since we were little kids, right? That this this idea it's such it's such a deep part of the American psyche. I find is yes, this, um, yes. and it's like and it kind of translates it when when it kind of when it kind of gets burrowed inside of you, it gets it translates into like a, a form of self loathing that I find you know to be very. Um, yeah. And, and they, they love that. They, they, they instill that upon you. Like if you're fat, it's just cause you're a disgusting, gross, you know, person who doesn't eat, doesn't know that you should be doing healthier life choices. It's like, no, that's just not how that works. There's big collective solutions to the obesity problem. You know, there's, there's, there's things that can be done. Um, not just like shame people for liking McDonald's, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, w- How about we look into why it is that the United States is particularly unique in, in obesity and all of these problems Mm. and what are other countries doing correctly? Like there's this very active effort to prevent Americans from doing any type of comparative analysis between our system and systems in other countries. And I think it's because we're not the best. Uh, we are messing up in a number of different areas and in order to actually do things correctly, we need to challenge capital. We need to challenge people in positions of power. We need to challenge this entire system. And we're getting a little Mm. taste of what that looks like when you want to do something as mild as demand that police officers stop shooting and killing people on the streets. (laughs) You know, like, hey, hey, maybe we don't want to live in a society with extrajudicial killings. And, you know, people's heads explode.
2: It's pathetic.
0: Anyway, um, so let's bring on Kale. Kale, what's going on? Do you have any uh, Kale? You look great.
3: Thanks, thanks, Dog. You look good too. Um, (laughs) Comments. The comments are always talking about how much they love you, Nando. They like. I think it's Anna's obviously gorgeous, and the audience knows that, and we have (laughs) multiple channels to, to show that. (laughs) <laughs> but like, people only get a taste of Nando once a week on the Jackman Channel, and they're like, yeah. "Who is Nando?" <laughs> they're just they're Who's just not guy? watching Univision or not Univision, um, uh, Fusion. And what are you doing these yeah.
1: days? No, no longer. That was like that was like four years ago, dude. It's mm. okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. I don't I don't really distinguish between. Corporate. Well, thank you, thank you to the to the to the people at home. Uh, I'm I'm humbled. Yeah.
0: You know, Nando, uh, uh, the Jacobin audience is a big fan, big fan of the uh, Hispanic movement.
1: (laughs) Oh, Oh, my God. Can we please talk about that? Can we please talk about that? This is the greatest thing any politician has ever said. Oh, my God. Trump on his standing with Latinos. The numbers, folks, folks, the numbers pulling at numbers that I guess no Republican has ever polled before. Perhaps Abraham Lincoln. But in those days, he wasn't big into the Hispanic movement, I think. Abraham had other things to think about. Don't we think? Oh, oh my god. Don't we think? <laughs> don't we think? He has other things to worry about. He had the guy coming behind him in the, in the theater. The, the bad man came with the gun. He wasn't big into the Hispanic movement. <laughs>
0: do you he's like he's unintentionally funny right Actually, like he's think, not
1: yeah no he's he he does he, he's trying to be funny kind of I mean I think he's trying I think he knows that he's trying to be funny I mean I wouldn't call him like I don't know it's what, what do you think Kale
3: it's I mean he's he's obviously a showman and it's a performance but it's like the way that it's filtered through his brain that he understands right. that like social issues are like filter like things like immigration for instance or citizenship rights predominantly because in this country it gets taken up by middle class people rather than working class people and working class movements it becomes these like representational or diversity related like cultural issues of like are we seeing enough latinos in our ads or in our workplaces and by workplaces we actually mean like boardrooms like there's plenty of uh, Latino people like uh, in the kitchens or, uh, you know, the people preparing uh, foods at like a fast food restaurant. Like, but no, of course, like the way it's filtered through his head is the the Latino movement. Uh, <laughs> and,
1: well, I think I think Lincoln, to be fair, was he was like a big anti Mexican uh, Mexican American war uh, advocate. So maybe he was bigger into the Hispanic movement than Trump is given him credit for. Uh, big fan
0: big fan of the latino
1: movement big fan of the latino <laughs> movement the latino <laughs> movement folks we gotta we gotta call up matt carp on that one yeah call up matt carp yeah but it's also also but also the fact that he's the president is just like the like you know if he was just saying this on a stage and he was just some guy it wouldn't be that funny but the fact that the president of america of the fuck the most powerful person ever to ever have walked the face of the earth is like saying that stuff. It makes that that adds a layer of comedy to it, like a sick version of comedy, but it's it, it adds to the layer of comedy. He also does this
3: thing very often where he like removes himself as the president, where he's like, Yeah, folks, we should be doing this thing. They're not doing this thing. It's right. like the they in that sentence is you, you, right?
0: Yeah. But okay, but to be fair to him. Like Twitter has made it clear that a lot of politicians do that and it makes me crazy. Like it makes me crazy, especially when yeah. democratic lawmakers yeah. are on Twitter and they're like, yeah. I'm, I'm very upset about this. Someone should do yeah. something about this. And it's like, yeah. what what do you think you gotta the Speaker of the House, for? Nancy
1: Pelosi. Oh, God,
0: it makes me crazy. Yeah. But look, to be with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, though, I've kind of come to accept that maybe it is better that they do the Twitter thing. Because their inability to do any type of public address is damaging to any progress in this country. Like, their effort... Have you guys seen that YouTube ad where Chuck Schumer appears on the screen after Stacey Abrams, and he's like, I'm asking you to... Like, what is up with that delivery? I hate that ad. Like, it makes me want to, like... I hate that ad so much. I almost want to donate. I'm asking to Asking you for
3: money right now. We <laughs> yeah,
0: the Democrats awful. are in a really
3: bad situation. We're probably going to lose unless you donate twenty bucks. And also, <laughs> I'm burning. My skin is literally yeah. burning right now.
2: <laughs> like yeah.
0: his his glasses are like hanging off his like the edge of his nose. He, he, you could tell he's like looking down at a script. There's like no enthusiasm in his voice so yeah if they want to tweet rather than do any type of like press conference or public address i got it but i'm and mostly talking cloth. about what happened
1: The when they did the kente cloth like it's better just to tweet than yeah. to do something as embarrassing as the kente 100%. cloth which is just like 100 i mean you know it's got to be some sort of psyop to you know to to turn people off the democrats i don't know it's just like i couldn't believe yeah. that
0: and by the way i was kidding i, I would never donate to republicans I, that was a joke <laughs> Just in case, yeah. Ooh.
1: Just in case people
3: were were worried about the red brown alliance that Jack right. is Notorious for, yeah, the Nazbol. Um,
1: that's us, folks. Yeah, um, Strasserite, Kale. You're a Strasserite. Wouldn't be the, the first term, time right? I've been called that. Um, really? Damn. Uh, that is I've never term. been called that. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, I'm not doing. I must be doing something wrong. I think if you're being called a Strasserite, you're doing something right. Right. If you're not being canceled, like. All the time. Yeah. You're not challenging power. Like, right. I've yet to be canceled. And has been canceled. I've yet to be canceled, I think. I don't know why.
0: You'll get there. You're doing more I'll on work. You'll get there. Okay. Yeah.
3: Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you should tweet more. You should be more online. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, this is the part of the show where we take your questions and I didn't mention that before I came on and then we just started riffing, but um, people have questions. Also, please hit like, please hit subscribe. Um, Yeah. There's quite a few of
1: you watching. Tell your, tell your friends, tell your parents, tell your daughters, tell your brothers and your sisters and your cousins. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Tell them all right now. uh, Right now. Call them up. (laughs) Um,
3: So we have, one person has already asked a question. They asked, okay. um, "Why do you think the media always ignores the obvious systemic issues in those feel-good stories? And is there a way to fix that through legislation?" Um, Anna, do you mm-hmm. want to pick that one back up, or?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a really great question. I don't know what the solutions are, uh, really. I, I get a little uncomfortable when it comes to any type of regulation because. We're dealing with this insanely corrupt political system, and I would rather not have them decide what type of regulations would impact uh, media and and journalism. But I will say, like, I'm going to speculate as to the reasons why uh, legacy media outlets tend to ignore the systemic issues that happen to be the root of the problem, right? Um, First off, when it comes to television media, you guys got to remember that The hosts are millionaires, like they're incredibly wealthy and disconnected from what most of us are experiencing. And then on top of that, you have to look at their business model, right? So if their business model is, you know, reliant on advertising money, well, their corporate advertisers are not going to like the type of commentary and the type of coverage we do on a show like this. Mm. And so, and then I also think even, even before all of this, ex- yeah, you know, we hands off Verso, we're not. And Verso's great, but that's the thing. I mean, people like us who work at Jacobin and the Young Turks, finding advertisers is impossible because mm. there's this, you know, there's a huge disclaimer in these deals indicating that like we're not going to allow anyone to censor us in any way. And so advertisers pull out immediately because they know Mm. that they're probably going to get criticized based on the type of content we do. But even before people get hired and get paid millions, I think that the hiring process plays a role as well. You want to hire like-minded individuals so you don't have to censor them. These are just things that they already believe. And what they believe is that there aren't systemic issues and we should just focus on, like, charitable nonsense instead of reforming the system.
1: Yeah. There's, like, a really famous Noam Chomsky interview with some, like, British guy. And, you know, and the British guy is challenging Noam Chomsky. He's like, no one has called me up today to tell me, like, you know, give me the list of questions. And no one's given, you know, like, no one has called me up. And he's like, and Noam is like, he responds and he's like, yeah, they don't need to. Like you believe certain things and you sincerely believe them, and that's why you're in that chair. If you believe different yep. things, you wouldn't be in that chair. Um, and you know, i've I've worked in I've worked in the corporate media, um, and I've seen it from the inside in the new like in the newsroom. Um, it, again, it's not the it's not the smoke filled suits calling you up uh, to be like, hey, could you like not do that? It's more of like a it filters down institutionally and, and there's just like a whole lot of what what's called self-censoring, you know, like you know that you shouldn't yeah. like slap the hand that feeds you. Most people kind of know that instinctually. You have to be a certain kind of um, like polemicist or something to, to to like go real go after the hand that feeds you you know um and uh most people just aren't like that and and so they they understand kind of on some instinctual level that they can't really challenge power when it comes from uh when when you're existing in this like for-profit environment um and which is why like i always think about a lot and it's like a thing that used to be a a bigger thing on the left is the the belief in a public media. I know like Amber Frost has talked about this uh, at some point, like the the news is a public good that should be funded by all of us, like electricity or water or, you know, this, it's the same, you need information for a society to function and therefore the people should kind of have a stake in control uh of of the information and, and some form of like a public media that is both in but is that is public but also kind of independent of whomever mm-hmm. you know is in power which is like the tricky um kind of way to structure it but you 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 need some sort of public media that is accountable to people not accountable to corporations essentially
0: I totally agree with that and and one other thing I just wanted to add every once in a while um, one of these cable news networks or mainstream media outlets will screw up. Maybe they don't do their homework, and they'll hire someone who actually does want to challenge power. And there are smoke-filled rooms. Like, in, you know, in 2010 and 2011, when Jenk was hosting on MSNBC, mm, yeah. he was very critical of the Obama administration because, first of all, he was right. Obama <sighs> was making all sorts of awful policy decisions yeah. Um, and, and he, you know, Cenk wanted to do a, a fair show that doesn't just hype, like hyper-focus on Republicans, but also keep liberals accountable for their actions. And he was called into, um, Phil Griffin, that's his name, I think. Uh, yeah,
1: Phil the, Griffin at was the time head of, MS, the, of, of, M, of MSNBC, yeah.
0: He was the his head office, of MSNBC. Yeah. yeah. He told Jank that. MSNBC, they're not outsiders. They're insiders. And he said something oh, yeah. along the lines of, outsiders, you know, they're cool. They wear leather jackets, but we don't do that. Like something along those lines, which is like the cheesiest thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. But Jank uh, turned down, and he never talks about this. It drives me crazy because it gives you a sense of what kind of person he is. He turned down a million-dollar contract, million dollars, because he refused to be censored by MSNBC. Mm. And like, you know believe me he is not making a million dollars right now um yeah. and probably never will but I, I, you know was, it, yeah. yeah
1: no the, and by the, the way the Obama, Obama administration hit, you, okay. hit
0: up MSNBC and was like hey what's up with this what's what's up with this dude like what tell me I remember up. when Cenk and, was and on
1: MSNBC did. I remember that really well I was yeah. like, what's going on here like this is not gonna last <laughs> like you I had like very it, yeah. I like understood that that was like you know uh that that wasn't Good. That wasn't gonna last very long. But like, I remember—I—I—I'm mean, I, old enough to remember when Phil Donahue was fired from from MSNBC for opposing the Iraq War. I mean, think about yeah. that. You know, like they weren't—it wasn't even a partisan thing. Like Jenk was going after Obama, who's like, you know, Phil Donahue was going after Bush. Mm-hmm. You know, like the other side, and and he got fired. So, yeah. right. Well, I think. I mean,
3: what both of you just said, I think, is. I mean, that's, that's basically it, but I would just add one more piece that for the skeptics out there that, that want to push back against the, like, Oh, this sounds conspiratorial, the smoke filled room argument. And like, I think a lot of times, like, because it is like a power structure, like it's a pyramid mm-hmm. that goes up to the top where it's like just a couple people up there who are making uh, workplace decisions for everyone below them and basically political decisions for their employees. And, um, I think part of it is just those, like, you know, anti-left kind of political or ideological reasons. But part of it also is competition. It's, like, the name of the game with capitalism, like, and this might even sound a little dogmatic. And I think this is something that you, our lovely viewers, should just, like, consider and then, like, test or like, in circumstances when you're thinking about, like, why are these corporations doing what they're doing? fundamentally like the driving force in capitalism is competition it's like either you get a like a relative advantage against your competitor or you uh you risk losing out and like drip, like dropping below your profit margin and the whole thing is is over and so mm. like in competition is so fierce in capitalism and like we feel the competition as workers as people in labor markets trying to get jobs but like and obviously it's horrific because it's like work or starve. But for a capitalist, like and we're and we're thinking about like right now news media, like they're they're not thinking long term because they can't. They're thinking like week to week, like they have to make sure that the ratings are up, that they're that the ad revenue is coming in. And if they you know, if they make a decision that is like, let's focus on like actually why something horrible is happening uh, to these people rather than just like the feel good. I mean, really not feel good. Typically it's like the, the heart wrenching story about like, like what we just talked about earlier in your segment, a segment, Anna. Um, yeah. And uh, uh,
0: like blaze, that poor little boy who was given up by his parents because they can't afford uh healthcare. Like, how is that not the story? How is that not the heart of the story anyway? Right, Right, because if
3: they don't do the thing that's going to drive in viewers, and it it, it, typically are those more emotional things. It's not like the like let's talk about the structure of power in society. Like it's going to mean a dip in in ratings, and it's going to mean a dip in profits, and like Mm -hmm. just like fundamentally, their existence as a corporation is now in jeopardy. That like yeah, so it's it's both the individual decisions, and a lot of it is that, especially in something like media. But like just at the corporate capitalist level of what's going on like yeah that's that's it like it's either make profits or you lose out and and you die
1: yeah no it's true i mean when when the news had to compete with entertainment for attention to survive because this is new people don't realize this like if you know the history of the news media in america like especially tv news used to lose tens of millions of dollars a year and it was almost a source of pride uh, for the newsrooms in any network they had to keep the newsrooms and, and do the news by law um, but the newsrooms lost money and they didn't have to compete for attention because there was only four networks and they basically all had the same time slot so they didn't have to compete with like an entertainment property and that's when the news kind of became more entertainment is when it was forced to compete against entertainment it's like what you're talking about like the name of the game in capitalism is competition and the competition you know is what it's it's a race in a way it's a race to the bottom also in terms of quality i mean you know as problematic as the bbc is from a news standpoint and it was and it and it very much is but it it the, the it's presence in in both and its and its freedom from the bottom line or the the quarterly bottom line and and its mandate to kind of elevate programming like kind of slightly above what the you know just the 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 bare bones of like your guilty pleasure you know it's like why some of their programs like their shows are like just of a higher quality they don't have to they don't have to debase themselves if that makes sense like there is something to be said about um just not having to worry about the you know the profits for the next quarter Mm -hmm.
4: yeah
3: and remember the bbc came out of the british welfare state came out of the the labor party and the trade unions like gaining power in that country like it's not it's not generosity from the rich no it's working people taking control over their society and saying we deserve uh fair and decent media uh yeah. and fair and decent reporting we're kind of at time but i wanted to do one more question do it. um do it baby just see we, we if so we you
1: know we can we can we can go a little over for the people that's right all for the people
3: um someone uh t-sound asks um, did y'all catch the story about New York MTA workers being busted for having secretly made their own break room? Wasn't it considered normal to have break rooms in the past? Uh,
0: Jesus. I did not see that.
3: I didn't see that either. I only caught bits and pieces of it um, that I, I knew that it happened, but I just haven't been able to follow exactly. But uh, to answer the latter question, yes, and it's you know the same reason that I just said with the BBC, which is that like there would be no reason for your boss to give you a break room because yeah. of competition. They need to they need to constantly make more and more profits. So like the idea that you have a break in the day or yeah. uh, like let alone a pee break, like actually huh. like cigarette break or like just talking to your coworkers about anything like Maybe cannot like, be
1: allowed. I mean that's a, that's one of the things like the the break room uh you know I know for like in in, in, in education circles like the break room is seen as like an important um, thing because it's like the, the the bosses aren't around um you know and that's the whole point and, you know the bosses don't like <laughs> things like a break room because that's when the employees can just kind of hang out and talk it's like hey isn't it fucked up that like this thing happened and like maybe we should do something about it you know but like if the boss is watching you know they're not gonna they're not gonna do anything about it. Um, so, yeah, that's why they hate the break room. Right. And
3: I would just add a little book recommendation because that's what we do on this show. Um, if you haven't read Harry Braverman's Labor and Monopoly Capital. Um, I have not. It's one of the most important books of the 20th century. Just like, honestly, it is like for for what it's describing and analyzing and, and what, it, what it's describing and analyzing is the invention of what's uh, what's called scientific management or Taylorism in the, the early uh, 20th century, which is essentially uh, this question of uh, how do we get our workers working at the same pace that they are right now to produce even more things? And so sometimes that's technology, but what Taylorism is, is different means of managing the workplace, of uh, figuring out how to move people around, figuring out like, for instance, like getting rid of like, break rooms uh like so when we're thinking of like open air or open um which is the right phrase i guess like open offices where like Mm -hmm. uh it's it's like you know as much oversight as possible
1: innovation
3: yeah right Mm. it's as much oversight as possible and then it's de-skilling workers to the greatest extent possible so that a worker who you know is uh on an auto line or something they know how to do that job Uh, as an auto worker better than someone who makes shoes for a living or something. Um, Right. Because there's very specific job requirements for that job. But if you take away all of the specifics of that job and you just make it so like, they're just operating a machine, they're just pressing a button, they're just moving a lever. Like you can replace them that much easier. You can then get the shoe guy to come in and do that job too. And so this was like, this is scientific. They like figured out how to replace people and make them and make them more replaceable by like actually alter altering like the work itself and the workplace that this happens in, and so like we are living through one of the worst periods of like working class destitution, where like MTA workers who like in the middle of a pandemic like keeping the MTA clean, keeping the MTA running, yeah. and keeping like essential workers uh, to actually get to their workplaces doing an invaluable public service are are they get the hammer dropped down on them by their bosses because they, the boss and like the boss is obviously a pig and cruel, but like it's competition. And so like, fuck the boss, but fuck capitalism. Like you have to do both. You have to say both. Got to say well, both. the
0: system is what incentivizes the boss to act the way he or she does. Uh, but this system, I mean, it dehumanizes us. And then that extends to us dehumanizing each other. So mm. I think that a lot of like what we're experiencing with social unrest in this country is tied uh, to how this system dehumanizes us. Like it's, yeah, it's, I, we need a general strike. Like it just needs to happen.
3: Something. Well, we need, at the very least, we need a revived uh, labor movement. We need labor militancy, and you know, can't m- wag a, a magic wand and get it. It's um, so kudos to the to the MGA workers and any other workers who are like trying to get a little GAs. bit of decency in their lives. Oh, well. um, you know, appreciate you. Um, on that note, I'll let you guys sign off. It's been a great show. Sam was awesome. Um, yeah, thank you both, and thanks to our audience, of course. Uh, and hit like and subscribe if you haven't already, because we do this Please every do. week, and every week it gets better. So
0: come, nice. come yeah, join. It. It. Yeah, thank <laughs> you so much, everyone, for watching. Thank you, Nando. Um, I'm not going to lie; uh, I did not do as much work uh, on Friday night toward this show as I typically would. I need a little bit of break, so today was a bit of a scramble. But we're, we're you made it look
1: seamless. You're a pro. You're pro. pro. You're Please. pro. Yeah, right. They didn't notice. Yeah, right.
0: I mean. My tech like took a crap right before we were supposed to start okay. the show, so that's why you guys have this You're terrible a pro. Um, camera.
1: You still, we still did do it. it. We did it. We did we're it. there.
0: Um, so as Kale mentioned, please um, like and uh, share this video. Uh, share this with everyone you know. Try to get the message out there. We love hearing from you guys as well. So thank you for your questions. And yeah, have an excellent week. Uh, we'll see you next week with another episode of Weekends.